Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Mike is joined in this episode by Patrick Buchan, director of the U.S. Alliances Project and fellow for Indo-Pacific Security at CSIS. Pat's also a former official with the Australian Department of Defense, Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, and the U.S. Office of the Secretary of Defense. After discussing Pat's unique background as an Australian seconded to the U.S. government, Mike and Pat move towards discussing one of America's oldest Indo-Pacific allies, Australia. What are the origins of Australian grand strategy? How does Australia's role as a Five Eyes ally impact its ability to affect American planning and strategy? Finally, Mike and Pat evaluate Australia's recent efforts to network with other spokes in the U.S.-led Hub and Spokes Network in the Indo-Pacific. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Michael Green from CSIS in Georgetown. On this podcast, we're looking often at U.S. grand strategy in the Indo-Pacific region, but... We're taking some shows to step back and look at the strategies of other major powers, players, allies, and adversaries, including how those influence U.S. strategy. And today, we're turning our attention to Australia. The U.S. and Australia have a long and close security partnership and deep strategic trust. Beginning over 100 years ago at the Battle of Hamill, when National Guard units from Illinois served in World War I for the first time under a non-American general, General Monash of Australia— through the Battle of the Coral Sea that stopped the Japanese advance on Australia at the beginning of World War II, to Vietnam, to Iraq and Afghanistan. We have with Australia one of the closest security and defense partnerships we've ever had in our history, including, of course, Australia's participation in the Five Eyes Arrangement for Intelligence Sharing and Australian officers embedded in U.S. units around the world. Australia also has a very important influence on the American strategic debate. A lot of decision-making about entry into Vietnam in the mid-60s was shaped by Prime Minister Menzies and the Australian government at the time. The American decisions when I was in government during the Bush administration on regional architecture, institution building, the U.S.-Japan-Australia trilateral security dialogue were ideas that emanated in Canberra. So we want to understand debate in Australia, how that affects our thinking. And we couldn't have a better guest to help us with that than Pat Buchan. Pat's a fellow here at CSIS. He's the director of the U.S. Alliances Project. He's worked in defense and national security policy in the Australian government, in the prime minister and cabinet office in the defense department, but he's also been embedded in the office of the secretary of defense in the United States, where he had responsibility for the national defense strategy and big picture planning. Uh, Pat, why don't we start off by having you tell us a little bit about how you got into this national security business, maybe a bit of a different story from some of the Americans we've had, but, but how'd you get here? Yeah, thanks, Mike, and thanks for having me on. It's great to be on the Asia Chessboard. My journey into, you know, how I got into our business was essentially uh, growing up in Australia during the uh, the period of the closing days of the Cold War. I was always fascinated by what was happening through the news. Classic kid who would play a lot of risk and got interested in grand strategy. But I was always a kid that was very interested in what was happening around me outside of Australia's borders and particularly in the, in the big issues on the United States, the closing days of the Cold War. And of course, the rise of China. I come from that Australian generation where Australia really started to enmesh itself in Asia you know, APEC in 1986 and those pushes in. So when I got to university, it was all about Australia's growth in Asia. And so that's how I came into this business. So it was a natural progression for me. What was your major in university? Uh, Political science. Political science. And do you study international relations and languages and strategy or was it more of a uh, theoretical or methodological approach? What's the focus? 
Yeah, for me, it was very much a sort of grand strategy, but I focus very much primarily on Southeast Asia. And that reflects the generation I come from, where it was really about, you know, the Australia-Indonesia ties. Of course, I, I studied Australia-Indonesia relations. I wrote my thesis on that. And when I arrived at the Defence Department, I was promptly uh, put onto the uh, Iraq desk. So right. uh, that's the way government goes. So help us understand the essence of the strategic problem for Australia. Uh, what what animates the strategic debates? What are the insecurities? How far back do they go? What's the core thinking in Australian views of geopolitics in the Indo-Pacific region? I think it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because um, in many ways, I think Australia is the great historical anomaly of the world. Um, this is a, a country that only 225 years ago experienced European migration, of course, Australia's indigenous population had been there a long time, but European migration occurs in in the year 1788. So it finds itself this kind of European outpost at the bottom of Asia. And so very much primarily from its earliest days of European settlement, driving Australian thinking was what we call a reliance on a great and powerful friend. So initially from, let's say from 1788 all the way to about 1942, that great and powerful friend is Britain. And Australia seeks to play the junior alliance role to the British. Uh, and when and where Britain's needed. Uh, so we see that through the Sudan, through the Boer War, through the First World War, through the opening phase of the Second World War, Australia goes to serve um, to serve alongside Britain for its own interests. It's not sort of licking the boots of the British, if you will. It is in a hard-headed interest because it fears abandonment in its region a long way from Britain. We see from 1942 onwards, um, Prime Minister Curtin makes a famous speech appealing to the United States after the fall of Singapore. After the reality of the limited British uh, engagement that it could do in Asia and the fact that the United States now was the paramount power in Asia to protect against imperial Japanese. What's the famous curtain line from his uh, Rito speech, Return? Prime Minister Curtin gives a famous speech where he says Australia turns its gaze towards America away from Great Britain. He phrases it in a way in which he says we're not sort of discarding Britain, but we now look to the United States. And in fact, you see in that uh, Australia in 1940 opens its first overseas embassy right here in Washington, D.C. So Australia could already see from that period looking to engage the United States in its region. But of course, the United States is in this great period of isolation throughout the 20s and 30s. So the key was, how do you contain Japanese imperial expansion? How do you entrench the British? But obviously, after the fall of Singapore, there was only one option. That was the United States. Of course, uh, Pearl Harbor's happened, so it's now about how can we get the United States involved. And of course, it's reciprocated by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who writes early in the war a letter to Churchill pointing out that the top priority in the Pacific is to stop Australia from being cut off, the Battle of the Coral Sea, because strategically and geopolitically, the U.S. recognized that Australia was going to be the springboard and indeed was it the springboard for the island campaign and, and uh, the defeat of Japan. How much of this turning to the great power is uh, values-based? That's a great question, isn't it, Mike? And I, I think one of the things I often find with hard-headed political scientists, they look at the metrics of power, don't they? They look at the, you know, the economy, uh, military capability, demography, but they fundamentally overlook the, the power of values. And I think one of the things you do find between the United States and Australia, both as immigrant societies, as migrant nations, um, built on the promise that you could turn up with nothing and within a generation you can have something and you can contribute back. So that value 
values-based uh, proposition um, is something that has been a hallmark of the alliance, the rule of law, um, defence of democracy, the seeking not to impose your will on others and throughout, you know, from the First World War all the way through, both of those countries have shared that. And it is something I think that hardheads often overlook. I ask because Australia shifted from Britain to America in 1942, and there are some, it's a minority view in Australia, there are some who argue that there will have to be a China choice, that down the road, because of China's growing economic power, Australia is going to have to shift to a Chinese hegemonic system. Does that have any logic to you? Does it have any political or popular following in Australia? Yeah, again, this is, uh, we're getting back to the hard-headed uh, argument versus the, the values-based argument. Look, Professor Hugh Watt, who uh, I, I know you know well, Mike, um, that was a, a famous thesis, the China choice that he he put forward in 2012-2013. Uh, effectively, the China choice argument that he put forward was that, you know, three, three grand propositions, right? One, um, the United States can resist China's rise. Two, it could provide a concert of powers, if you will, accept China and then create a partnership to share, if you will, in, in, in the region. Or three, it could retrench. It could step back and, and, and say to China, okay, fine, you're now the regional hegemon. We're retreating back to San Diego and, and uh, getting behind the Pacific. This argument you're seeing in Australia at the moment about China's rise, it's been around for a long time. Right? This fear that you're going to face a, what I call a T intersection where you can uh, turn left to the sign to Beijing or turn right to the sign to, to Washington. I think it's a little bit infantile. Look, the reality is uh, Australia's economy is, is deeply intertwined with China. China became Australia's largest trade partner a long time ago, overtaking Japan. Of course, the United States remains the largest foreign director investor right. in Australia. And that's key, and people often miss that. And that's key, and people do often miss that. That's exactly right. But in terms of the export market, is overwhelmingly China. I think it's, what, 26% of total trade now. So I think that as the Australian approach is to continue this high wire act. I think the nuance to the debate, uh, Mike, about this so-called China choice is the she factor. In the last sort of five or six years, this more robust, this more, I don't want to use the term expansionist, but this more uh, adventurous China is the way I'll put it. Um, is that a factor of President Xi's personality or, or are we seeing a fundamental shift in Chinese national security and foreign policy behaviour? Uh, and I don't think that argument's uh, been had yet. I think the key missing element though in terms of this so-called China choice for Australia, I don't think Australia and Australian national security policymakers can come up with any so-called China choice until the United States puts a, a marker down about what its relationship is China. And I personally don't believe the United States is there yet. I don't think the United States has a China strategy. Uh, I think it's a very piecemeal approach. Well, you were in the Pentagon when the national defense strategy was being written. Wasn't that a China strategy? I think it was a China defense strategy. But not a national strategy, there, all instruments of power. There is no national yeah. instruments of power China strategy. It is very piecemeal. I think the Pentagon certainly has a, a view on China. So the missing piece for an ally like Australia then is is not the defense piece, which is pretty clear and recognizable to Australian defense forces. It's the larger grand strategy. The national security strategy didn't do it. The vice president spent speeches on China didn't do it. I assume is uh, failing to resonate in Canberra because it lacks what's been important for Australian strategy for decades, institutions, free trade, and that kind of investment in architecture. Would that be a fair assessment of the Australian private critique of the administration's lack of a China policy? Yeah, well, look, I mean, we can write all the, the strategies we want, and I'm not dismissing the national defence strategy, and I'm not dismissing the national security strategy. 
I think they were reasonable thought processes. Um, but the key is, is always is the follow through, right? Um, right? What are you doing about it? Now we saw the skinny trade deal with China. Again, there is this almost schizophrenic approach from from Washington at the moment towards China. I don't think the United States knows whether it wants to compete with China, cooperate with China, or compete and cooperate with China. So we're in this schizophrenic approach, and I don't think it's going to be clear for three or five years as to what the United States' grand approach to China is. So if you're an ally... Australia or Japan, for that matter, you don't want to be blowing the whistle and going over the top and taking the other side's machine gun fire if all of a sudden the U.S. is going to say, never mind. But on the other hand, you don't want to have to worry that if they come at you, the U.S. won't be there. The Lowy Institute in Sydney has interesting polling. Support for the alliance, even under uh, the controversial Trump presidency, is pretty high in Australia mm. in the in the 70s uh, and has been consistently. And polls show that Australians are generally confident that the United States will come to Australia's defense. That hasn't really declined uh, in recent years. But at the same time, these polls show growing doubts about whether Australia might get pulled into a U.S.-China conflict and about overall American staying power in, in Asia. That seems like the polling captures the dilemma Australia's face, Australians face with us right now. On the other hand, you know, you look at the Australian white paper in 2017, Prime Minister Turnbull's speeches that year uh, in Singapore, pretty critical of China emphasizing the rules-based order in Asia. I mean, making it clear what's at stake with China. So it seems like overall, looking at the polls, prime minister's speeches, white papers, Australia is not defecting from the U.S. It's, it's investing more in the U.S., but there are some real questions about whether the U.S. might pull Australia into a fight it doesn't want with China, or on the other hand, whether the U.S. is going to stay invested in the region. How do you deal with the U.S. like that? And it's not the first time, of course. You had the Vietnam War. You had, as you mentioned, the 30s and early 1940 when Australia opened an embassy. It's kind of a fickle, big power. Sure. How do you manage that if you're Australia? How do you shape American strategy? I think there is no greater operator in this town than the Australians behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. I'd agree with that. Right? It, um, it used to be the British. Used to be the British. I think they've lost something with the Brexit problem. Maybe they'll get their mojo back. Right. They've been uh, otherwise occupied, obviously, the last three years. And also, I think that reflects the shift of strategic weight away from Europe, out of the Middle East as well, and, and into the into the region for which the British, obviously, sort of post-Suez haven't had a deep expertise or, or a deep interest indeed, Mike. Back to your question on how do Australians view the United States currently? Firstly, the Australian people are very well informed of the issues. They are very well informed on the alliance and they're very well informed that China is picking up the check currently for Australia's 27 years of consistent growth, right? Unparalleled in the G20. What's driving that is obviously China's rise and by the way, the participation of women in the workforce. You've, you've doubled the size of the workforce and China's come online. So how do you message people when costs are high but wages are up, home ownership's up, how do you say to people, well, it's pretty easy in the Cold War when you can say, well, the Soviets are, are bad, they don't share our values, but that's okay because we don't trade with them anyway and yet all the way with LBJ with the United States, right? That's an easy proposition. Right now, you've got the problem with Australians do understand that China's their largest trade partner, yet at the same time, the United States is their number one security partner. I'm not convinced that the Australian people are yet convinced that in the long term, the United States is going to stay the course in the region. I'm also uh, not convinced that the Australian people take the view that the policies enacted under this administration and the rhetoric out of this administration are now not the US norm 
I don't think they are. Well, the rhetoric's not the norm. The rhetoric's not the norm. I think even the... Donald Trump supporters would acknowledge that. Right. But but the messaging, right? Uh-huh. The, the messaging. Um, so I, I think many of us here in Washington understand we can differentiate between campaign politics, rhetoric, and, you know, what the undercurrent on Capitol Hill and throughout the national security bureaucracy and the strong support for alliances, the strong support for the rules-based order. I think many of us understand that that is a deeply held notion. But I don't think uh, many people in Australia who hear this rhetoric, they do question US commitment. They do question, they look at the metrics about China's rise. They do look at the behaviour of Xi's China. They do see the foreign interference, which has made a lot of news here in Washington. Foreign interference in Australian politics. That's right. In Australian politics, in the university sector, many Australians do question what is the level of long-term US commitment. But they also have to have fundamental questions, and the polls seem to show this, about whether China would, if it became the hegemonic power in Asia, sustain the kind of open rules-based order and values that Australians have come to expect, right? So if you're Australia or if you're in Canberra making uh, policy in DFAT or the prime minister's office, there's no merit, is there, in hedging against the U.S.? You need the U.S. to be there as much as you can get. And it seems to me, where do you go? You do more with Japan. You do more with other players in the region. And the Australia-Japan relationship is growing in leaps and bounds uh, over the last 20 years. Absolutely, Mike. Uh, I, I think that anyone in Canberra or anyone in the foreign policy establishment in Tokyo, if you said after the United States, who is your most closest and consequential partner, or if I can use the you know small A ally, uh, both would answer Australia and Japan. There's no question of that. Um, notwithstanding the um, you know the issues uh, we saw with the submarines and so on, I think Australia. And this was when Japan. Under Prime Minister Abe, with Prime Minister Tony Abbott, was at the highest levels talking about providing Japanese submarines exports, the right. Soryu, to replace the Collins-class subs in Australia, which was a logical choice in many ways, but in the end, the French got the deal, although we'll see what happens. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, we saw that, and I think many people were very concerned that, wow, the, all this effort that we've put into this burgeoning cooperation and trilateral cooperation, obviously, with the United States as well, uh, might be at risk. But I think both sides, both Australia and Japan, should absolutely be congratulated for taking the lessons learnt from that and moving forward for the sake of the diplomatic and political relationship you're seeing. So you're in Australia. You are not 100% confident about the US trajectory right now, but you're not so worried that you jump ship. You invest heavily in your relationship with the president in Washington, the embassy strong relationship with the Congress and with think tanks in Washington, the incredibly tight uh, and embedded and five eyes relationship between the militaries and the intelligence communities. But you hedge a little bit in terms of playing uh, more with Japan. And then you uh, have to stand up to China. So how does Australia stand up to China? You know, China cut off Australian, or essentially using mercantilist tools, stop the import of uh, Australian coal for a while to protest decisions on banning Huawei. Australia's been pretty tough. The only country to publicly and explicitly ban Huawei other than the US. Japan and other countries have done it quietly. So Australia's taken from middle power, uh, facing 1.4 billion Chinese, has taken some pretty tough stances on Huawei, on Xinjiang and other things, and been punished for it. How do you sustain that? Well, the first thing, you, I think you're getting back to the values argument, aren't you? Um, this yeah. is first and foremost uh, a values. You know, my view is sovereignty never goes. If you give away your sovereignty, then you're gone. Economics, 
comes and goes, right? Money goes up, money goes down. If you start giving away your sovereignty and your values, then you're gone. Then you are down the river. Now, that all said, what else do you do to push back on China? Well, one, you keep the United States engaged and involved. Two, you diversify your relationships, not just within the uh, Indo-Pacific between the United States Australia and Japan, but you start to diversify. Indonesia coming online. Australia's relationship with Indonesia in the last 20 years has been an absolute um, story of strength, hard work from both sides. 20 years is significant because of the East Timor crisis, That's right? right. The East Timor crisis uh, at the end of, the, end of 1999, the relationship was in a extremely bad way. 20 years later, it's an extraordinary way. So as countries like Indonesia assume greater roles in the region, Australia has really taken a, a smart approach both bilaterally and then deepening its engagement, Mike, into the multilateral structure. So things like you know ADMM and ASEAN and so forth, Australia has really diversified its relationships, not just bilaterally, but also multilaterally. And additionally, You've seen the United States, I, th- I think, also recognise that the hubs and spokes model, that is the bilateral tr- treaty alliances and, and cooperative partnerships that had developed after the Second World, I think there is a realisation in Washington that that, that is starting to uh, not have the ability to deliver that it once did. It's an untapped opportunity, and hence the consensus in Canberra and Tokyo and Washington uh, that we should begin looking beyond these bilateral security treaties, the US-Japan alliance, ANZUS, USROK. These are bilateral mutual security treaties, networking them, creating something that moves a little closer to, although ultimately does not become a collective security arrangement, which is appropriate because the alliances were formed in the early 50s in very close reference to each other. The U.S. Peace Treaty with Japan and Security Treaty would not have been possible without a U.S. uh, ancestry. Because Australia and New Zealand wouldn't have done a Peace Treaty with Japan otherwise. So they've always been linked. And in some ways, the framework's always been linked. And I think capitals are starting to look at how to network. So what you're describing is an Australian grand strategy that does not assume a China choice at the end of the day, that doesn't assume that we're shifting to a bipolar U.S.-China order or shifting from American to Chinese hegemony. It's a strategy that reflects the eclectic nature of power in the region. You have areas of American hegemony, areas of rising Chinese power, but you also have growing middle power and major power multipolarity with Japan, you mentioned Indonesia, India, Australia. Right. So it's it's diversifying the playbook. And ultimately, it seems to me to restore and maintain and reinforce the rules-based order that Britain provided, that the US provided. Um, Australia's having to do more eclectic strategy, but it's still fundamentally, it seems to me about the US-Japan alliance. The multilateral peace requires Japan. I mean, it was Japan and Australia that kept TPP-11 alive without the US, right? right? Um, and it's Japan and Australia that are working in the WTO context when, frankly, the US is often absent. What about the military relationship? We, you know, the U.S. and Australia relationship is so tight. One person we both know well, senior in Australian defense, when I was in the White House and asked, how's it going with the U.S.? He said, oh, it's, we're doing everything but nuclear. It's an incredibly broad and dense relationship because of what we were doing together in Iraq and Afghanistan and CENTCOM, the Middle East. Now the big challenges are in the Western Pacific or the Indo-Pacific. And this is an alliance that in terms of military cooperation was probably deeper at the CENCOM level than we were, arguably, than we were at the PACOM, Indo-PACOM level, yep. right? So so what do we need to be doing on the defense side in terms of interoperability, roles and missions, and command structures, things like that? And I know you've got a, a study group on this and a series of roundtables at CSIS, so you're deep on it. We can't spend an hour, but what are the top-line takeaways? So, so you're, you're spot on, right? When I went into the into the system, sort of 2004, 2005, as a, as a, as a new young desk officer in Canberra, you know, the relationship 
had atrophied largely at the paycom level and was very much, as you say, at the CENCOM level. We've seen obviously a big shift away from that, and that's a good thing. Interoperability-wise, I think you're seeing um, an extraordinary amount of work being done outside of Australia's traditional avenues for interoperability, what's called ABCA, Australia, Britain, Canada, uh, and the United States, right? You're seeing Australia and Japan work closely. You're seeing Australia and Japan for the first time doing bilateral air exercises together recently in Japan. So where Australia is looking to go is this sort of plug-and-play concept, air warfare destroyers, uh, et cetera, where... It's working far more closely, not not just with the United States in terms of their air and maritime domain, but particularly with countries like Japan. And I'd like to see that diversify just outside of that trilateral as well. And things like India coming online, um, I think, uh, with uh, India's new F-21 project that offers something uh, far more for uh, countries like Australia, for middle powers, uh, for Australia to continue to diversify its relationships absent of the US. And by the way, I think that's in the US interests. If its middle power allies can work closely together, it, uh, it takes takes a little bit of the burden off the United States. But I think it comes down to how far are countries like South Korea, like Australia, like Japan, willing to go in terms of not only interoperability, but in terms of operations, um, steady state operations in the region without antagonising China. And I don't think we've seen uh, anything yet that could push China into really pushing back against the US allies like Australia, like Japan. So there's still a a lot of reluctance around about how, what does the red line look like? So Australian force posture and force structure allows uh, air, naval, ground components to plug right in with the US and any coalition and very short notice, which is really important in the CENTCOM and uh, Indo-PACOM areas of responsibility. Sometimes, from time to time anyway, over the past, you know, seven decades of our alliance, there have been debates in Australia that Australia needs to be a little less focused on plugging into coalitions and more focused on its own hemispheric or, uh, you know, continental defense. Are those voices still there or is there still a consensus behind or is, there, is it a false choice? Can you do both? Yeah, Mike, I think you're referring there to the what was called the Defence of Australia concept, which yep. came in after after the Vietnam War. That's where Australia decided, okay, there's a, a an air sea gap. We are going to post the Guam Doctrine where the United States has sort of indicated it was starting to retrench a little bit from the region. So Australia took a an approach where, okay, fine, we're going to get behind our, our large moat that surrounds us and that's the, the strategic in-depth will be our, our, our greatest asset. Obviously, post 9-11, you did see Australia move away from that, uh, start re-engaging the region, start re-engaging in, in the Middle East, particularly militarily, right? But um, that concept remains very much the core of a defence assumption, but uh, it, it Defence of Australia in terms of what we're referring to from 35 years ago doesn't exist anymore. And it, and it can't in a globalised uh, world. It can't in an integrated region. Um, but in terms of, you know, where you say things like Super Hornet Growler, F-35, you're seeing Australia's large defence purchases still remaining very much aimed at that interoperability, that plug and play uh, into the Pacific Command and so forth. It's really kind of remarkable when you think about it, how little discussion or debate there is in Washington about Australia. I mean, people in this country and in our government largely take it for granted because we've been so close as allies. You know, every major uh, conflict since the First World War, we've we've been there together. Australia's strategy has been about going in at the pointy end of the spear, which means taking more risk earlier, but as a result, having more say. And I saw that in the White House with uh, both Afghanistan and Iraq. Mm. Australian forces were F-18s, special operators, you know, right at the most dangerous point end of the spear, right at the earliest phases, not on the same scale as some other countries in terms of numbers, 
but with enormously more influence in the debate because Australia was willing to take that risk early on. Well, it's also planners, Mike. It's um, th- what I think Australia does really well as a close ally is the ability to put its its planning staff right into senior US level headquarters, into the Pentagon, uh, and and that 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 level of influence they get to implement as a middle power, I think, is is something that uh, many other countries would very much like to emulate, and that's what's the extraordinary part. And it's a blessing for the US, it's a blessing for, I would argue, Australia and for the region. The consequence of it, is though, though, is that you have very little public or even elite debate or discussion about Australian strategy or strategy for the alliance. Right. And um, having you at CSIS corrects that, and Andrew Shearer before you, uh, and this podcast hopefully helps to correct a little bit. Ultimately, alliances rest on public support. There is strong support for the alliances in both countries, but there's some hard choices and trade-offs coming up for the U.S. and Australia going forward. And I think we're going to need a little more public, congressional, elite, university, and public discourse about what direction this alliance goes because it's been so effective to date and is going to be so critical going forward. Yeah, look, I would end on a note there. You know, you do talk about, uh, obviously, if you're in Sydney, Canberra, or Melbourne, the US alliance remains far larger in the public consciousness and in the elite consciousness than, than it does looking the other way. Um, but, but a really interesting t- poll in the New York Times uh, a little under two years ago, uh, where it listed among Republican voters and Democratic voters, you know, who are the US top 10 allies? It was really interesting to see among Republicans, Australia came in at number one, uh, among Democrats, number four, and then combined uh, at, at number one or two uh, with, with, alongside Canada. So if you had to run that poll 25 years ago, uh, you know, I'm sure Australia would have made the top 10, but it is extraordinary the decisions we've made and, and the weight of history shifting that you've seen a Australia um, rise uh, in terms of the public consciousness here and among uh, among the elite opinion, particularly because of the choices Australia's made post 9-11. Its level of engagement has been very consistent, very smart, very shrewd, and as you say, at the pointy end of the spear. Um, my view is how does Australia continue that, particularly when it comes down to what we started the conversation with, the China choice? And we're going to need more discussions like this. But for now, thank you. Thanks, Mike. Great to be on. A note for our listeners, the Asia Chessboard will, after this episode, go on a short winter break. Be sure to tune in January 13th for our return. The whole team here wishes you a happy and healthy new year and happy holidays.